So we're going to start by talking about two kingdoms, two cultures, two worlds, really, two gospels. Part of the point of this is that there are two kingdoms, and really each one of them encompasses all of life. And there are two ways of doing pretty much everything in life. And so we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. I love this scripture. It feels like it applies to this event in many ways, to how we feel about it. But this is the beginning of Colossians. Paul says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And then this verse is kind of like a theme verse to me in some ways. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Some translations will say he has rescued us from the power of darkness or the authority of darkness, dominion it means, a government, a rulership of darkness and he has conveyed us or translated, transferred, he has removed us, the word can mean removed us from one kingdom and planted us in the other one. This is Colossians 1.13. He has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Two kingdoms, two powers, two sources of authority, and our salvation is found by being delivered and rescued from one and planted into the other. So this terminology of kingdoms and powers runs all through the New Testament. Here's a connected verse in Acts 26. Paul is recounting how the Lord spoke to him when he was called to the Gentiles, and he said, Jesus said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. It's the same thing, isn't it? There's a parallel there. He's turning them. The word actually means to convert. It's one of the words sometimes translated repent turning from one kingdom into the other kingdom, from the power or dominion of Satan to God. It's a repeated theme all throughout Scripture. Salvation is spoken of as an exodus, as leaving one kingdom and coming out into an inherited, promised land of another kingdom. Right? So you think of the obvious examples, probably. There was Abraham, the father of the faithful, who heard the call, come out, of your country, of your family, of your people, and go out to the place that I will show you. Amen. And of course, we think of Moses and the Exodus, 
of the children of Israel from Egypt, being delivered by a mighty hand to be brought out to be God's own special people, his own nation. And then the fulfillment of all of these examples in the Old Testament coming to us through Christ Jesus. He is termed Christ our Passover. Amen. He is the passageway from one kingdom into another. He opens the door from one to the next. The true Passover. Amen. Which the exodus from Egypt only foretold. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. The word literally means called out. That's what the word church means. In our day, people think of church, they think of a building. Some people will translate it as congregation. But really, certainly not the first and not even the second completely captures the meaning of that word in the Greek. It's not just a random grouping of people. It is a group of people who have been delivered from one kingdom and translated into the next kingdom, been called out. Amen. So kingdom, the very term kingdom, why did we choose this as kind of a theme? You probably noticed um, as you go through the days and the schedule that each one has something to do with the kingdom. What is the history of the kingdom? What is the nature of the kingdom? How do we enter the kingdom? How do we advance the kingdom? How do we continue the kingdom? We didn't choose that theme. Jesus did. This is not our terminology. This is the terminology that Jesus uses. And we tend to gloss over it, don't we? Because it appears so often in the Bible, of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that it's almost like we go right past it without thinking about why do we use the term kingdom? Jesus uses the term kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom, he calls it. I counted 52 times just in the book of Matthew that Jesus uses the word kingdom to describe what God is trying to build on the earth. This is his term of choice. Why does he use that word? Think of the parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. He's always trying to find a way to communicate to people. Apparently, it's hard for them to understand what it's like. So he tells them stories and speaks to them from every angle, trying to communicate to them this all-important concept of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those terms are interchangeable, by the way. There are those who try to differentiate between the two. They have a vested theological interest in wanting to separate the kingdom of heaven from the kingdom of God and work it out in these different dispensations. But if you're tempted to think that way, just please do a Bible study sometime on the parallel references to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and you'll find that they're used interchangeably numerous times by Jesus throughout the New Testament. They're the same thing. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same. Along with that confusion that sometimes comes is a notion that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is something that only comes later. Oh, it's the kingdom of heaven. That means that in the sweet by and by, when it all works out, Jesus will be king and we'll all be there. And so hopefully someday we'll get there. But for now, we're dealing with reality. Jesus was trying very hard, I think, to get through to people that, yes, we're dealing with reality. And it's called the kingdom of God. <laughs> and the question is whether or not you will be able to see it and enter it and be part of it. Not just then, but now. Amen? So we see in Jesus' prayer... His model prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come 
on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not something that we're waiting for in the sweet by and by. It's here. Do you remember when Jesus talked about John the Baptist? And he said, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. But I tell you that he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. What do you think he was trying to say? One thing is he's pointing out that somehow apparently John the Baptist was not in the kingdom. Whatever the kingdom of God is that Jesus came to bring, which both Jesus and John would preach about and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that John somehow wasn't part of that kingdom. It had not yet been realized in John's day. But he says the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Is he saying that anybody who is a born-again believer is more gifted than John? Plays a more important role in history than John did? It doesn't seem like that could be what he's saying, is it? But he's saying there's something about being part of the kingdom that is a greater manifestation of God's purpose than John the Baptist knew. Does that make sense? Amen. So this kingdom concept, this is not an individual concept, is it? Jesus and me is not a kingdom. Okay? He didn't say, seek first a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the rest will be added. Seek first the kingdom of God and the rest will be added. So this concept of a kingdom is a corporate thing, isn't it? Amen. It denotes rulership, government, authority and power of a king over his dominion that he reigns. It's where the authority of God designates, dictates, and governs all things that are under his dominion. So there is a government, there is an infrastructure. You think about Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it from this time forward and even to the end of the age. Amen? Do you hear the kingdom prophecy there? This prophecy about Jesus is saying this is to increase his dominion, his government, his kingdom. Amen. Let me read you one scripture that I'm write down. This is 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Amen. Corporate terms. So, there is a contrast, is there not, between this kingdom of God, whatever it is, we know it's a spiritual kingdom, but somehow it's supposed to come on earth. And there's a contrast between this kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. Do you remember what John says in 1 John 5, 19? He says that the whole world is under the control or the dominion of the evil one. 
the devil himself said to Jesus at the temptation, all the kingdoms of this world have been given to me, all of them, and I give them to whoever I wish. Amen. Jesus did not respond by saying, oh, you're bluffing. It would not have been a temptation if he was bluffing. Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan. We're going to worship the Lord and him alone. Amen. It is true. Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world, the prince of this world. Amen. And even after the resurrection, some people say that was only until the resurrection. Even after the resurrection, John was writing what we just quoted. Paul was still calling him the god of this world, Satan. So the dominions, the kingdoms of this earth stand in contrast to the kingdom of God. And isn't that what Jesus said in John 18? When Pilate was asking him, are you a king? What is going on here? They're calling you a king. Are you a king? And he said, you say rightly that I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight that it would not be delivered to the Jews. We'll talk about this more later. But now my kingdom is not from here. So he is a king. He does have a kingdom. It is reality. But his kingdom is not of this world. So there is a contrast here. There is a conflict between these two kingdoms and the way that they rule, the authority that they have, the power that they have. Now there is a confusion in this matter that is very common, at least in this country, amongst believers. That somehow the kingdoms of this world can be, in fact, merged with the kingdom of God. So much so that America is termed the Christian nation. Yet we don't find this concept in the New Testament. An earthly government governed by the forces of the nations of the world being called the Christian nation. This kingdom is not of this world. We're going to talk more about that in seminars that are going to come. And yet it is a kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus responded to his disciples when they said, after he was resurrected, they were all about the kingdom. They wanted to see, they, but they thought of it only in natural terms, didn't they? And so when Jesus was resurrected and they finally realized, all our hopes have come true. All along they'd been wanting to make him king. Remember, they'd try to make him king and he would slip away and... He never wanted to do the, the king thing like they wanted to do it, but they wanted it to be real. They wanted it to really impact their lives and the way they lived and, and such. You know, so they're like, well, let's get with it. Let's get rid of the Romans. Let's set you up in the palace and let's, let's make this God's dominion. And Jesus would always find a way to not go along with that. And then he's crucified, and they feel like, well, it's all lost. And then he's raised from the dead, and one of the first things they asked him is, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he does not rebuke them, not directly. He does not say, no, you still don't get it. He just says, it is not for us to know the times and the seasons. They are reserved under the Father's authority, but... I'll insert this part, but regarding this kingdom business, he says, he's answering their question. Will you restore the kingdom? He says, it's not up to us to know the times and the seasons, but go to Jerusalem and wait until you receive 
power from on high. The kingdom was coming, he had said in Mark 9 to the disciples. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom present with power. So this is what was prophesied by Jesus. Go and wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power, and you shall be my witnesses here and throughout to the ends of the world. Amen? So the kingdom, Jesus says, is coming in power when the Holy Spirit has come, and the church is born on the day of Pentecost. That was the inauguration of the kingdom of God that John the Baptist even was not a part of. Amen? But it has now been established. The beachhead of heaven has come unto the earth where the dominion, the rulership of God could come inside of people's hearts. Remember, Jesus said, the kingdom is within you. This rulership, this government is coming inside of human hearts and is going to rule us, yes. It has authority, yes, but of an entirely different nature than all the kingdoms of this world and the ways that they try to control people. Amen? It does not have borders, this kingdom, natural borders. It does not have all those other types of government, but it does have a government, it does have a king. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about culture. This is very connected to the concept of a kingdom. A kingdom is all-encompassing, typically, isn't it? It has laws, it has customs, it has boundaries, it has borders, it has apparatus, and all these things that determine, shall we say, the bounds of people's habitations, how they live, move, and have their being. Amen? So God's kingdom also determines these things. And this really could be spoken of synonymously with our term culture. Culture has been defined as the total process of human activity. Everything that we do, what we wear, what we eat, where we go, where we work, how we think, all of this total process of human activity is summed up in the word culture. Now the word culture, the root of the word culture is cultus, which means worship honor or religious devotion. The point is it's actually a religious term. And even secular people, sociologists and such, will acknowledge that culture is actually a religious phenomenon. Whatever veneers people want to put across it, and it's very common actually for people to want to assume that there can be a culture that is not religious, but in fact religion and culture are one and the same thing. Regardless of what we say with our mouth about our religion, our, what our culture is, how we actually live, is going to express our true faith. T.S. Eliot calls culture the incarnation of religion, or our lived religion. He says, religion is the whole way of life of a people, from birth to the grave, from morning to night, and even in sleep, and that way of life is also, it's culture. Culture and religion are synonymous. So a culture produces a nurturing habitat for a worldview. Where we live, what we surround ourselves with, it all affects the way that we think. 
It affects our perspective. It affects our approach to life. It affects our decisions. Are we going to surround ourselves with an environment that points to God as our sovereign? Or are we going to surround ourselves with an environment that points to the glory of man and what man can do? Whichever one it is, it's religious. It's where we place our faith. So to be a separate culture, to be a distinct kingdom, requires self-sufficiency, doesn't it? If you're going to have your own nation, then to some degree you're going to have to establish borders. You're going to have to provide for yourself. If you're too dependent on other nations, then you're not going to be able to survive, are you? As a nation, as a kingdom, as a people. So there's got to be some self-sufficiency involved in establishing a kingdom that can be an entire culture that's not dependent upon another culture. Okay? So if the kingdom of God is to be more than a patch that's sewn onto how we really live, where we really spend our time, how we really think, then it's going to have to have a wholeness to it. Wholeness is life. You can't have life without wholeness. Take any living creature, say a body or even a plant, and if you start to take it apart, you're going to kill it. It's going to have to have all of the ingredients necessary to make that living body stay living. <laughs> we can't just say, ah, yes, well, the important things are the heart and the lungs. The rest of it, we'll, uh, you know, is optional. You're going to have to have all the parts, and they're going to have to be fitly framed together. In fact, it's so incredible that the psalmist would say it's fearfully and wonderfully made, that such knowledge is actually too high for me. Only God can put together a body that truly lives. Amen? We're going to have to have His direction. We're going to have to have His inspiration to know how to put together a body that is not going to just be on life support to the world. Amen? While we pretend that actually we're helping the world. Like we're the world's chaplain. We're there to advise you know, the kingdoms of this world. We're there to infuse a little religion and put a little religious aura around the political campaigns and so forth. It's very common, isn't it? How many times do we see world leaders quoting scriptures and invoking religious principles. There is a reason for that. It's because they know that really these are the things that pull at what really matters in people's hearts. And so it gets hijacked. The church gets hijacked to be used by the kingdoms of this world. If we're going to escape from that position, then we're going to have to have God's pattern. We're going to have to have His information. His knowledge, His Word coming to us to make us whole, to make us complete in Christ, lacking nothing. Okay, so life is wholeness, death is the opposite. Death is always looking to fragment and decompose. Somebody showed me a birthday card recently, this is a little off the subject, and it said... Do you know what Mozart is doing on your birthday? He's decomposing. <laughs> I warned you, it was off the subject. 
Amen. My point is, death leads to decomposition. All right, come back with me now. Don't, don't, don't dwell on that one too long. <laughs> death leads to decomposition. Amen. The more you fragment it, the more it falls apart. When it's dead, it's going to decompose. But life is building up. It's coming together. It's saying, it all matters. What does the kingdom look like in this area? What about this over here? Have we even thought about that? Amen. Life is, is reaching for those things and saying, we need all the systems in place if this kingdom of God is actually going to survive here in this hostile world. So this is directly tied to the concept of oneness. Wholeness is oneness because it all comes together in one place. You think, of course, of the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with part of your mind, a little bit of your strength. No, all of all of it. It all comes together in him. Do you remember when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment by one of the, was it one of the lawyers, I think? And he answered the Shema. This is the greatest commandment. And the, the lawyer confirmed it and said, yes, to do this is more than all the law and the prophets. Sums it all up. And Jesus' response to him was what? You are not far from the kingdom. You're starting to get it. It's going to have to all come together in him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That means make you pure. No foreign elements. Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is again, isn't it? Wholeness of every part of life. People say, well, sanctification is nice, but it's optional. Because we're saved by justification. Sanctification is a splinter skill. <laughs> Amen. But that doesn't fit with the Word of God, does it? 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Amen. So the Spirit... And the truth are the sanctifying, purifying agents that bring us into wholeness, bring us into oneness with God. Amen? So our salvation, again, is, is found in this wholeness that comes to us through the Spirit and the truth. Okay, the cultures that we're talking about in the Bible, these two kingdoms, two cultures, are typified by two cities. And that's appropriate, isn't it? Because a city is not an individual entity. A city is a corporate entity. Those two cities are Jerusalem, which typifies the kingdom of God, and Babylon, which typifies the kingdoms of this world. Interestingly, both of those cities are spoken of in the scriptures, in the New Testament, as mothers. Jerusalem from above, it says in Galatians, is the mother of us all. Whereas Babylon, says in Revelation, is the mother of harlots. But they're both mothers. What is a mother? A mother is the source of life to begin with, along with the father, of course. But a mother specifically fulfills the role of a nurturer. 
A mother feeds, a mother clothes, a mother takes care of, a mother tends and cultivates and nurtures life. So we're looking at two cultures, two nurturing habitats, two systems, two worldviews, we could say. One that nurtures a faith in God and another that nurtures a faith in man. You shall be as gods. Babylon, you know what the word means. The word means confusion. Going all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis, it means confusion. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Babylon means confusion. There's peace where there's oneness, where there's wholeness. Amen. But Babylon means confusion. We're trying to merge two things that don't go together. That's why it's the mother of harlots. We're putting together a relationship that's not meant to go together. We're forcing something together that doesn't go there. And this is the deception always, isn't it? Babylon always nurtures the illusion that you can serve two masters. So it's not, in the kingdom of God, it's black and white. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall serve Him only. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. If it's God, serve Him. If it's Baal, serve Him. But choose me so that you may have life. Amen. God is always making it black and white. You can eat of these trees, but do not eat of that one, or you will die. But you can eat of the tree of life. It's always black and white with God. And yet, with the anti-king, if we may call him that, the ruler of this world, he doesn't just say, okay, God's about life and I'm about death. Which one do you prefer? He knows that's not going to work. So his message is always... It doesn't have to be a distinction. Let's just roll it all together and have the best of both worlds. Amen? That's always what he's trying to tell us. He's going to be trying to get us to think that we can serve God and idols. Amen? So the call of God has always come out of her, my people become the ecclesia, the called out special people. Come out of her so that you do not receive of her plagues. Come out and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Come into a special kind of family relationship with me and with your brothers and sisters. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So the word of God is coming to us to bring this distinction, isn't it? The word is referred to as a sword. It divides asunder. It distinguishes between spirit and flesh. Amen? That's why we need it. We need the spirit and we need the truth. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. We need the spirit and the truth to bring to us to open our eyes, to bring to us the necessity of the distinction between the two. It has been said that culture is a mystery. Babylon is called Mystery Babylon the Great. Why is it called that? Because there's something about it that people don't, they don't see, they don't understand. 
And culture is that way. Now, why is that so? Because the culture is so total, so encompassing, that we don't realize that we're in it. The word mystery shares the same root as the word myth. And the word myth doesn't, isn't only used in the sense of something that's not true. It's also used to mean something that is unseen. It means literally that which the eye is closed to and the ear does not hear, what is not known. And culture is referred to as a mystery, both in the Bible and by sociologists and such, because it's so immersive that we don't see it. Hegel said, what is familiar, precisely because it is familiar, is not known. So we can be like a fish in the water. We're not conscious that there is water because we've always been in water. We don't know about air because we've never been in air. This is just where we live. Amen? So there are things about it that we don't see. My wife and I went to, uh, went to Brazil a number of years ago now for uh, extended stay. We were there for six months and, and you know, any, anybody here who's traveled to a foreign country and, and lived there for any length of the time, you know, we call it culture shock, don't we? <laughs> because everything is so different. It's not modifications that we're talking about. Everything is different. And so it's hard to even get your bearings sometimes, right? But the interesting thing to me was, although we experienced that there, when we came back to America, I was surprised at how different it seemed. There were things about American culture that I had never seen until I left for a while and came back. And then my eyes were opened. I have sent you, Paul, to open their eyes, to turn them from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. Amen. Our eyes are going to have to be opened somehow. We're going to have to taste of another world somehow if we're ever going to get anywhere in discovering this kingdom of God. We've got to see through the culture that we're naturally born into. Amen? To even know what it is or how it controls us. And we're going to have to have some kind of experience that immerses us in a different kind of spiritual reality in order to ever recognize that kingdom. I suppose that's why Jesus said, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God goes on to say, unless you are born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Something has got to happen to us to open our eyes, or we're not even going to see the kingdom. We're going we're to just stumble along with the rest of the lemmings right off the edge of the cliff and never know what happened. You remember what's written to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Let's just blend them both together. Let's serve both masters. I could wish you were cold or hot. Apparently to God, mixing the two is worse than going the wrong direction. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, 
blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments. You're going to have to get this from me, he's saying. White garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might see. Amen. The nature of the culture of the end times in the Bible is a culture of deception. It is an atmosphere of deception, is it not? He's, given, he's blinded their minds. He's given them the delusion so that they might believe a lie because they didn't love the truth. Amen. Numerous scriptures talk about that. Jesus said that it will be such that even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. Paul says if our gospel is veiled or hidden, if it's a mystery, the gospel is also a mystery, you see. The kingdoms of this world are a mystery because they're so familiar that we don't see them. And the kingdom of God is a mystery because we've never been there until we go there. It's unknown. It's not been experienced. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded who did not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Amen. Brother Blair has written about a, um, there's an influential cognitive scientist from the University of California, Berkeley, who talks a lot about frames, how we think about what we think. He has a specialty in linguistics, but he says that our perception of the world is shaped by frames of which we are not consciously aware. He says frames are mental structures that shape the way we see the world. As a result, they shape the goals that we seek. They shape the plans that we make. They shape the way we act and what counts as good or bad in the outcome of all of our actions. When the need is to reframe your thinking, the facts will make no difference at all. What does that mean? When you need to reframe your thinking, facts are not going to matter. Think about it like this. Have you ever heard of an atheist who became a believer because somebody finally gave him enough information about the Bible or about God? You know, it was, it was all accumulating, you know. And nothing was happening in his heart, but in his brain, he was just weighing it all out, and it was all accumulating. And one day, there was a straw that broke the camel's back and said, you know what? You finally told me enough facts that I get it. Does that ever happen? If you know when that's happened, let me know so that I can get your list of facts and we'll, we'll make use of it. But I don't think it ever happens. It doesn't happen the other way either, does it? If somebody that's got... 10 degrees and, and has, you know, 10 times as much knowledge as you and has all kinds of information that you've never heard about before, going to be able to come and start rattling off enough stuff that you're going to say, you know what, I don't think I believe in God after all. You've just told me enough stuff here that I, I think I'm going to reconsider. That doesn't happen. Do you see? So the accumulation of data is not really what's needed. What's needed is something that gets a hold of people 
that opens their eyes, opens the eyes of their hearts, that gives them some kind of reframing experience that causes them to rethink everything. Everything looks different in this light. Amen? Uh, maybe a road to Damascus kind of experience, could we say. Something's going to have to happen where the lights go on. Amen? And that's what we're trying to achieve in the kingdom of God. We're trying to allow God to make of us a culture that can be so immersive that it brings that kind of change to people, that it opens their eyes, that it becomes a witness that is more than just, let me tell you some words. Let me share something by way of ending this part that Brother Blair shared with us years ago that has always been near to my heart. He's pointed out that there were contexts in the Bible, numerous places actually, where Jesus was silent. When he was brought before Herod, it says that Herod had wanted to see him for a long time. He had heard about Jesus and he wanted to, you know, he was hoping maybe get him to do some miracles or something. Amen. If you just do a little show for me, maybe I'll believe. Who knows? It never happens that way. Amen. But Herod, he wanted to talk to him and it said Jesus answered him not a word. And the same thing happens before Pilate at first. The same thing happens before the Sanhedrin at times. Jesus does not even answer direct questions. Why is that? Did they stump him? <laughs> he just couldn't think of what to say right at that moment. I don't think so. He just he couldn't figure out where they were coming from and just thought it would be better to plead the fifth. <laughs> I don't think so. He had the wisdom. He knew what they needed. He knew what would be the best for him. He knew all of that. Amen. So why isn't he saying anything? It's because it wasn't going to do any good. He knew the frame from within which these rulers of this world were thinking, be they secular or religious rulers. They were all rulers. If the rulers of this world had understood the mystery, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They had no frame. Herod could only think in terms of aggrandizing himself and such and entertaining himself. He had no frame. There was no humility. He wasn't going to see the kingdom. He wasn't going to get it. When the right framework is not there, the words will have no effect. There was no context. It was the wrong culture. So God himself had nothing to say. Have you ever heard people say, well, if there's God, how come we don't hear from him? Well, have you created a place? Do you live in a space where he feels the freedom to say anything? What does your life look like? How do you think? Years ago, Brother Blair, in a meeting that everybody who was there remembers, hung up a door from the rafters of the meeting hall. 
all by itself. And when everybody came in, they were a little perplexed as to what that door was doing up there. And he proceeded to speak about, what would you say that that is? And most folks were reluctant to call it a door because it didn't seem like it was functioning as a door. It was the shape of a door. It even had a knob on the side. But we were reluctant to call it a door because it wasn't in the right frame. So it didn't mean anything. Remember, Jesus said, I am the door. But into what frame do we place that door? And Brother Blair has said, the, the churches of today, it seems, sometimes operate like the old stage props in a Western movie. You know, where it's just kind of for looks. It's a facade. It's just the kind of this one-line dimensional thing uh, because it's not important what's on the other side. It's just there for looks. And so you put a door in that stage prop. You say, here he is. It's the door. And you open the door, and it's the same on the other side as it was on the first side. It's the same tumbleweeds blowing along. And so well, what was that for? Is it just for looks? There's no place. There's no space. There's no building. There's no temple. There's no body. There's no culture. There's no context that we're, we're not coming from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Amen? So the door has lost its meaning. It's lost its purpose. It's a door in space. And then he shared about that there was this train station in the city of Paris. This is a while back in the last century. And sociologists would marvel at the phenomenon of what would happen to people, rural people, when they would come to Paris. Paris was the, the monument to man at that time. It was the avant-garde city in France. And so they said it was almost as if the train station in Paris had a magical quality about it. That it would transform people. Just by coming through the train station, everything about them would change. Now, the thing was, was that the rural population of France was largely still religious. They were believers. And yet, it, it was as if when people came through that train station and stepped out into the streets of Paris, they lost their faith in God. Suddenly, they weren't believers anymore. It was like, we had no idea that man was so incredible. We had no idea. We've been country bumpkins, I guess. We've been out there with, the, with God's creation, and we've been out there with the stars, and we thought there was a God. But you know, when you turn the lights up bright enough, you don't even see the stars anymore. You know, you play the music loud enough, and you, you do the show for long enough, and you, you actually start to forget about all that. And it's like there's a whole new world. We've been liberated. So they would marvel at that. that it was as if the train station just... You were a believer, and then you arrived, and suddenly you were ashamed of your faith. Suddenly it didn't fit with the, the context anymore. And Brother Blair's message to us at the time was, we need to become the train station in reverse. The body of Christ, the community of Christ, is supposed to be a place where God does not have to be silent, where He's not drowned out by the noise, where his light still shines bright, where when people come through the door, they say, 
You know, I wasn't even sure I believed in God. But somehow, when, when I'm here, it seems like he might be real after all. Somehow when I feel, I don't even know what it is. But when I come to this place where I am immersed in a totally different way of doing things, a totally different way of living, things that seemed so impossible as to be non-existent suddenly seem like reality. Amen? That's our calling. That's the kingdom of God that is not seen by the world, but it's supposed to be coming on earth as it is in heaven. It's supposed to be an immersive cultural reality that those who come might be like the Queen of Sheba, that their breath might be taken away when they see a totally different kingdom than they have ever known. Thank you, Jesus.